players gather to cast powerful spells, some of the oldest and most powerful in the history of Magic the Gathering. Vampire Hexmage, Flusterstorm, Crop Rotation, and many other brainstorms. Battling head-to-head in brutal combat, they all have one thing in common, to uphold their legacy and the search for eternal glory. The Eternal Glory Podcast is brought to you by Boshmerl on YouTube, Thraven University, and TheEpicStorm.com. This episode is sponsored by Tales of Adventure. Get sweet legacy staples and much more at ToAMagic.com. Hello and welcome to episode 77 of the Eternal Glory Podcast, The Phantom Mailbag. We've already recorded 30 minutes of introduction and banter for this week, available in our Patreon-exclusive pre-show. Check out patreon.com slash eternalglory to gain access. As always, I am Phil Gallagher, a.k.a. Thraben U, joined by... I am Brian Coble, a.k.a. Bosch and Roll. And I am Brian Cook of the Epic Storm. All right, so this week we're going to be doing a mailbag. We asked all of the folks over on our Patreon to hit us up with some questions, and uh, we've got some fun ones, we've got some juicy ones. Regardless, we hope you enjoy. And while we're talking about them, shout out to the new patrons since the last episode. We've got Merton, Owen, Leo, and Dare Hines. I believe Leo and Heinz are both straight out of my Discord and my Patreon community, so thanks for the crossover, homies. Everyone else, check out patreon.com slash eternalglory if you want to get in the mailbag or get access to the 30 minutes that we already recorded every week. What archetypes in Legacy are only one or two new cards short of being viable, and what effects do they need to get them there? And this comes from Max. I'll be honest, I'm not a huge fan of these sort of questions. Like, I don't know. I I don't like looking at decks and being like, oh, this card would be perfect if this card existed. Uh, And it's like some made up card that you've constructed in your head. There's usually cards that exist within magic that can help strategies if you're willing to bend your mind a little bit. I was talking about this today in the Epic Storm, or I guess it's just the Storm Discord. I think a lot of things that could help in deck building is quit trying to slot cards into your deck, but instead view your deck as the flexible thing and mold or shape your deck around the pre-existing cards, if that makes sense. Magic is this game full of wonderful possibilities. You just have to have an open mind. I agree with most of that. I know this is a really dissatisfying answer to Max's question here, uh, but I also just, my eyes glaze over when people are like, design challenge, design a card that could fit this script or like appropriate power level for this format that would, I'm just like, oh no, <laughs> that's not my job. Uh, I don't, when I, when you're paying me Mark Rosewater bucks, we can have this conversation, but uh, I do like to exist with what, live with what is and not with what I wish was just in general in life and especially in magic. But I will take this a little bit of a different direction and I'll shout out some archetypes that have gotten some new toys in the last year or so that have been really great. And I want to shout out specifically two of my favorites, which are Standstill and Pox. Urza Saga just sent both of those decks into the moon, like Lone Pox uh, being a land that makes a bunch of value and then it tutors up your currency converter or your curse scroll or your Mox Diamond or whatever you need out of Pox or a land that just thrives under Standstill. It's better than Mishra's factory ever was. Love the the additions to that. Like Pox, I also just mentioned Currency Converter. I think between Saga and Converter, Lone Pox is just 
completely real at this point. I recorded with Standstill for the first time. I got really into Standstill when Shark Typhoon was printed and coming around to it again now after kind of ignoring it for a while. I'm making my first real earnest attempt at making that deck good. Currency Converter, shout out. Urza Saga, shout out. Timeless Dragon, shout out. There is a lot of stuff you can do under a standstill these days, and it's good. I was actually like cutting options. It's like, oh, there's too much. I need like normal cards in this deck too. So I'm going to choose to answer the question that way. I'll take a different approach here. I would say that most of the questionable things that like people like Brian and I play on our channels are one to two new printings away from being respectable. The issue is that most of the time when something broken gets printed that could make these archetypes better, it also makes everything else better, right? Cards like Deathrite Shaman, that might have been the glue that you needed to hold together your your bug mid-range deck. However, it's going to make everything else in the format better because like it's just going to slot in everywhere, right? So every time we get a really high power level card that might boost your pet deck up, it's also going to boost everything else up. Right. Like if we were to get like a hypothetical like Rite of Flame variant with Metalcraft. Like, it makes two, but then it makes four with Metalcraft. Bryant just passed out in his chair, by the way. That deck might make your Painter deck better, but Storm's going to beat you up a lot e harder. Like, there's going to be someone doing bigger stuff with your new toy than you are. So it's not only about you getting the printing you need, it's also getting the printing that you need that's niche enough that it doesn't go into other decks boosting them up. It comes up a lot in Legacy Discourse where people are say things like, well, when you look at Sneak and Show, Sneak and Show hasn't had a new printing in 10 years. Because you can look at, uh, what was the Artisan? Yeah, things Arcane like Artisan. That. They're like cyborg tools, but there hasn't really been anything printed in since Gristlebrand for Sneak and Show, which is sort of a fair point. Like there's Omniscience, but even that's like almost a decade old. Your deck isn't entitled to new printings, which is unfortunate, and it stinks when Blue Red Dalver gets a new card every three months that breaks it in half, and your pet deck doesn't. But ultimately, that's just magic. Literally as Garfield intended, the point of the color pie, the point of strategies existing, the point of context and deck building is that it doesn't just become all the best cards in a pile. Played Yu-Gi-Oh! when it was new, and there was no, like, color pie. Uh, maybe the game has advanced, or, like, synergy takes over raw power, but, like, every deck Back in those days, it was like two mind control effects. There were three discard effects and spells were just spells. Like you can cast some number of spells on your turn. You can activate some number of traps. You can play some number of monsters. And those were the only rules. You don't need mana. You don't need lands. So the best monsters, the best spells, the best traps were just 30 of the 40 cards in every deck. And magic is specifically designed to not be that. So when you're looking at a deck like Sneak and Show, where you literally have a 15-15 Annihilator and a 7-7 Lifelink that draws 14 cards on arrival. The backup plan to that is a spell, is a, an enchantment that you can cast all your stuff for free. What are you looking for? Like, what what cap hasn't been broken yet that it's going to replace Emrakul, Omniscience, and Grizzlebrand in the Sneak and Show shell? Do you want, like, a Sneak and Show effect that costs three instead of four? Like, what are we doing here? What are we talking about? Another thing I, I think that comes up in terms of does like card design is like you might want these things for your deck but does the existence of that card make the game better you know let's let's do an absurd example like let's say there is another card that is on the same power level as chalice of the void that can be played off an ancient tomb does having more prison elements like that in the game legitimately make the game better like yes unquestionably it would uh improve your archetype but like, does that make for better magic? And I think that's something very easy to forget. You can always say like, oh man, if I just had the redundancy in this, if I just had this, like... 
does does the game get better with those things being injected in and yeah. the answer is oftentimes no you don't need a second card that is effectively standstill right yeah like you're in your example there like a thorn of amethyst but for artifacts like non-artifact spells cost one more the lodestone golem text on a two drop instead of on a four drop like that's good for a small subset of people and terrible for everyone else let's go to the next question here this one is from cardboard connoisseurs with the three of you getting into cedh what are some card choices in your hundred cards that go against the norm and how best to break into this particular format I really enjoyed the deck breakdown that Brian posted a while back, and you three are the best. Thank you. Well, we're going to do a CEDH episode next episode, I believe, is completely dedicated to that format, that metagame that we've been talking about a lot because we are all getting into it. And Brian's going to have the most thoughts about this because he's spent his entire career just being as broken as possible. I have spent my time working on Rafine. Rafine, Scheming Seer, uh, I just like the ways to make her work. What can she do? And and like, rather than go, like, I believe what Bryant did, and he can speak to this uh, more than me, I don't want to speak for him, is how do I go the most broken and then find a commander that supports those colors and those spells? What I did was, I like this commander. How do I maximize for her in a way that makes more sense than any other combination of Esper cards? So I built like a Stax Reanimator deck. And there's a lot of card choices in there, like uh, Ruthless Sniper is a card I'm playing. Arcfiend of Ifnir, because I'm like a discard deck. Like Arcfiend of Ifnir is just Plague Wind every turn. And building to my commander uh, and maximizing for the commander rather than choosing commanders to maximize the spells is kind of the, the route I've taken here that has led to some interesting card choices. Brian is pretty uh, right on the nose when he said that I was looking to do the most broken thing possible. I mean, if you've met me, you know that's what I try to do. So I put out a tweet saying, hey, what is the best combo commanders? People sent me a bunch of deck lists. They're like, oh, you should look at uh, Kirk, uh, Sakashima or uh, Blue Farm. But it wasn't really what I was looking for. Like those things are like, one, I am never going to play a deck that flips coins. Like, I'm sorry. That's just like, I'm not going to do it. You couldn't pay me. Not going to happen. And Blue Farm was just too much of like a control mid-range deck. At least a lot of the builds are like, yeah, there's Ad Nauseam in there. But they're also playing like Dranith Magistrate. I'm like, you're not going to get me to play Dranith Magistrate. I'm sorry. So someone sent me Rog Silas. And uh, it's like a light bulb went off in my head. I'm like, oh, with Rograk, you get Mox Amber, you get all the free commander spells. And my head just started immediately going a mile a minute of all the possibilities. So I started looking into those. And from I started with a base list, and then I tried out another base list. And then you can form your own opinions, and you can start making more informed decisions. And before you know it, about a month or so in, I was questioning some of those norms. So to get around to actually answering Cardboard Connoisseur's question, I was told that from multiple CDH experts that Defense Grid was completely unplayable. I tweeted this as a joke and some people got pretty angry, but when I was doing research, that's what the, I'm going to use air quotes here, experts were saying. I was recently told that Overmaster isn't good because it only protects you on your turn. I've been playing Overmaster. It It's really powerful because people are never sure if they're actually supposed to counterspell it or not, or if it's just a bad cantrip. Uh, I've gotten people with, okay, play Overmaster with only two mana floating. All right, Mana Crypt, other artifact ad nauseum. That sort of stuff, like you can tell a story with your card and I don't know if the people dismissing the car- these cards have ever really played them to their fullest potential. Uh, I'm getting a little bit rambly now, so I'm going to stop and let Phil talk, but sometimes you have to question the norms. Yeah, that's the gist of what I have to say is I started playing Marwyn, uh, which is essentially Elf Ball, and the the greed that was in the mana base was, was unreal. You know, something like a third of the lands didn't actually produce true green mana on turn one, which is like huge when you need to be playing like elves and things like that. So I essentially looked at the mana base 
that was being presented in the primer as like you know the stock option and i just went like no no this this isn't okay and like i thought it was too greedy there were too many colorless sources you weren't going to consistently get the value that you needed to get out of the utility lands you were tapping out on your turns anyway so some of the cards like emergence zone weren't like going to be as good as they might theoretically be anyway and like the the biggest thing i did was like reevaluate the mana bases um, I think a lot of the decks are skimping on land or are skimping on number of colored pips in order to get these utility lands in there. I don't have too much else to say other than just that. I'm not surprised, Phil, since you were always the guy questioning the death and taxes mana base for being too greedy. So this is just like your brand. Oh, oh, oh yeah, absolutely. And then like the second deck I put together was Heliod Ballista, which is all the like stack stuff that I'm used to playing. So... I don't, I don't actually know if that's competitive, but I'm going to try it. I also brought my brand directly into CEDH deck building because my brand was hit your land drops and everything else will follow. Like if you're not casting spells, you're not in the game anyway. And I'm playing more lands than, than most folks. And I know land count is one of the hot debates on both EDH and CEDH Twitter in like their own respective context. But if I can err on one more land or one less land, I'm going to choose one more. Brian, we are going in opposite directions. I started with, so all the, like, the Rog Silas lists were at, like, 29 lands, and then, like, once I immediately started, everyone started, they just shaved one. Like, every list at the same time on Mox Fuel just cut one. So, like, clearly these people are talking, but I wasn't in the know, so I cut one, too. And then I continued to test, and, like, I draw so many cards with my Mystic Remora, my Rhystic Study, I play four wheels, and I was like, I always am just discarding lands, let's try cutting one. And then I cut another. I'm down to 25 now. Oh, that's that's absolutely disgusting to me. But you're doing a different thing than me. You probably have more mana sources in your deck than I do, though I have more lands than you do, and that matches up with our legacy playstyles as well. Good point. So uh, I I think that's a good spot. I'm gonna like put a period on this question by CEDH is still a casual format, even though you're allowed to play stronger cards and playing to win is expected. It's still a casual format, and it's still important to have fun and express yourself in that space. It seems that all three of us have somehow landed directly back in our wheelhouses, uh, despite taking on a completely new type of thing. Do with what you want with that. Like, be happy playing Magic, and the rest will follow uh, in these, these casual spaces. Next question is from Colton. I am a new Legacy player. Storm fan in all caps and primarily came from a CEDH background. What are some skills that coming from a hundred card multiplayer format I need to know sooner rather than later to jump starting being a successful 60 card player? 10 drills baby, all in caps as well. <laughs> Colton is a member of my Discord who I believe recently, well, I mean, I know has been consuming all Bryant stuff forever, big Storm homie, but I also sent him in the direction of Bryant for some uh, coaching and other stuff recently. And he's been posting pics of his uh, all Japanese and I believe working on foil uh, Epic Storm Ooh, list. Yeah, yeah. I like it. it. Completely consumed the Kool-Aid is like up to the eyes in Kool-Aid right now. But yeah, so skills coming from 100 card multiplayer into... 1v1 the biggest one is there's only one opponent there's only one thing to think about and it's can i beat what this person is doing you don't have to worry about like a dispel sliding out from somebody else who's not really involved in the counter war that you're in or whatever and the other big thing obviously the deck is smaller and you have a higher concentration of the cards that are good you both have fewer cards to work through and you have four of all the best ones and that really changes like i know uh bryant is not afraid of like 
a mathematically sound brainstorm in the middle, like committing to like a storm, like ritual, ritual, mocks, whatever, without the actual win yet. But you know that you're like 73% to hit on a brainstorm once you have the mana floating and like, you're not afraid of that where in EDH, where every card's a singleton, I would not be comfortable taking a line like that, though. I'm sure Bryant has also done the math on that. Uh, but yeah, y- you can you can trust your deck a little more to deliver exactly what you want because it's in higher concentration. I'd say that one of the things that I've noticed is in CDH, you're more rewarded for just constantly jamming because the cards are more powerful and it's more difficult to play around things because everything's truly so random. It is a format based on chaos. Like when you boil down the format, it's just super powerful things, but because they're all singletons, you never know what's really going to happen. Where when you switch to a 60 card format, having knowledge of what your what's in your opponent's deck and how likely they are to have it go super far and your odds of successes where in commander i mean i think you're supposed to jam like 90 percent of the time uh just because it's the right thing to do where in 60 card formats i am way more reserved and i really pick and choose my spots like just jamming isn't necessarily the right thing i would agree with that uh edh at all levels plays more like vintage than it does like legacy legacy is kind of a dance where uh, you and your opponent are looking at what each other are capable of and sort of fencing up until the point where somebody really pulls ahead and edh much like vintage is just like these cards are cracked i'm gonna put them on the stack good luck over there so i like the fencing analogy like we're 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 royalty over here in legacy absolutely um something else on this point Not the royalty point, but the 60-card skills point. Um, I think something that I really wish people had beaten into my head earlier was the fact that you play more sideboarded games than game ones. So, like, if you are coming from Commander in any capacity, like, you are always playing your same deck against your opponent's same deck, right? But in, like, 60-card constructed of any nature, your game ones play out very different from your game twos and game threes as you go to adjust your deck to fight your opponent and your opponent does the same so i think a lot of times when people start testing in 60 card formats they just play a bunch of game ones and they're like okay i get the matchup like no you you really don't you have only like touched the tip of the iceberg here you need to see how these game two and threes are going to play out differently Like, you should have different strategies for those games, and I would imagine that might be one of the non-obvious things. Yes, uh, that's a great point. Game two and threes are not things in any EDH variant. I I understand there are some tournament formats that I've heard of where you do get a sideboard or some sort of transformation in your EDH deck, but that's not normal. But it is expected in 60 cards, And really just, I barely even test game ones if I'm very serious about a matchup. Like we go straight to game two and threes. You're going to play more games two and three than you are going to play game ones over the course of a tournament. And that's just where the magic happens. Let's move on to the next question. This one is from Muso. I've played MTGO, that's Magic Online for folks, off and on since launch, but have almost no experience playing in paper. I was surprised at my last FNM to have an opponent refused a die roll to determine play draw. I had a casino grade die and even offered to borrow one from the players next to us in case he found mine suspicious for any reason, but wouldn't accept it. Instead, he offered playing rock, paper, scissors as his only acceptable method. But I know that method is not truly random and one can exploit patterns of human behavior to gain advantage. 
It was just an FNM, and I already had a negative record at the event, so I let it go, but it made me wonder. How common is this in paper play, and how should I handle this kind of thing in the future? First of all, holy guacamole, that opponent was a dingus. Shout out to to you for identifying that this is weird and abnormal. It is... So, determining play draw is like one of those conversations that comes up on Magic Discourse every six months or so. It's like uh, rolling two D6s and to a high roll is like the previous standard thing. Uh, Even Odd has been gaining steam in the last three or four years because it's one roll instead of two. And there's a lot of videos and discourse out there about no matter how many dice you roll, even an Odd is still 50-50. Like there is no like an odd plus an odd isn't even and an even plus an even isn't even so even is going to come up more often that that's not actually true max Dorshin actually made a tiktok about it where he rolled like hundreds of dice and was like just like showed you how it all works out uh, rolling to a high roll is generally accepted by everyone rolling to an even odd is what i prefer but generally my policy is just don't argue with anyone who has extreme thoughts about how to determine play draw but i would probably do insist on something actually random if it was like an actual like one two three shoot rock paper scissors game with your hands that's i I don't like that there are rock paper scissors cards they were in the original unglued uh rock lobster paper tiger and scissors lizard and i've seen people pull out a set of those and they have a fully random way where like they shuffle and then they let you pick for them and pick for yourself so they're like there's no possibility of abuse which i'm also fine with that's quick and you only do it once Generally, it's weird, and a high roll is what's going to happen. And if you're really stuck, I have both experienced this as a player and as a judge. If players just refuse to agree on how to determine who's going to play or draw, you can call a judge, and the judge will be like, okay, what's wrong with both of you? Let's figure this out. I always get uncomfortable at events when uh, there's a player that insists on a high roll. Like In my head, I immediately just go to, like, why are you being an asshole? Like, let's just odd or even this. I don't know. But when I when you read the question, I assumed that they meant the unglued cards. Uh, like, that was what my first thought. But anytime someone's offered to do that to me in paper, I, my mind goes like, oh, they're clearly playing for fun. They're not playing competitively. I try to not, you know, do that because it seems weird. I'd rather roll dice. But if it's super laid back, I'll do it. Okay, I'm going to take a different approach to both of you here. As soon as someone starts doing any behavior like this, I am immediately calling a judge, no matter what the REL is, no matter what the event is, literal FNM, literal five people in the store, I am calling a judge. Because if you don't cut their bogus behavior out now, this is every round that they play of Magic forever. Like, if you have someone in your store who is going to, like, have toxic behavior, who is going to insist that, like, they do certain things in a certain way, if you do not get, you know, a comment from a judge or a store owner that says, hey, you need to cut this out, this is not acceptable, they're going to continue doing that. On, on a different level, this is the same as, like, someone sitting down across from a female person and being like, oh, hey, are you here with your boyfriend? Hand in the air, call a judge, cut that behavior out now, otherwise it continues in your game store. Excise the problem. That's a good take. Um, based on the, the tone of the question, I sort of read the question, then went into my own experience, where normally the person is, like, kind of little smile, like little smirk, little glint in the eye, like, do you want to do rock, paper, scissors instead? As they, like, reveal their their unglued set of 
rock, paper, scissors creatures. And they know they're being a little silly and they know I could say no and like we just roll dice like normal. But yeah, in the tone of this actual question where the player was like, no, put your dice away. We're doing rock, paper, scissors and I accept nothing else. I, I would call a judge on that. That is kind of abnormal in a way that is disruptive. And yeah, th- there are norms for a reason. So I, I think Phil's got the right of it if you account for for tone here. That said, as long as it's like playful and actually random, I I will not spend any time arguing with someone. If I'm like, you went even or odd, and they're like, can we actually do a high roll? I'll just say fine, even though I think you're silly. So our next question here is from Bowlful, who asks, y'all got any experience slash interest in other TCGs outside of Magic? I actually played the Dragon Ball Z card, the original one, Dragon Ball Z card game up until GT came out. I played it alongside Magic. Fun fact, I think Brian and I have been playing a very similar amount of time playing Magic the Gathering. I've been playing since 2002 and I've never quit, but I played DBZ for a handful of years at the same time. And that game was just absolutely cracked. Like, they they just didn't know what they were doing for the most part. Uh, At one point, they printed something called a location, which would be similar to like a plane chase thing where you just pick a battlefield. And it said like, you... All your effects that have peers or partners in play count times six. And there was just like a random card that said deal four damage for each partner you have. And they never banned that card. So like you just decked your opponent with like a single card. Like it was just bananas. And they're just like, yeah, this is fine. Yeah, that sounds like the early days of Yu-Gi-Oh, which I already mentioned on this this pod once. Uh, I was really into the show when it first premiered. It was age appropriate for me at the time. Not that I think anime is inappropriate for anyone. Do what you love. I was in upper grade school, probably seventh, eighth grade when the show came out. And then the card game followed like a year later or so. And I played until basically Yu-Gi-Oh! did the same thing that Magic did with Chronicles, where after Alpha, Beta, Unlimited, Antiquities, Legends, Arabian Nights, they were just like, wait, people like all these cards. Let's print them into the dust. And that's how we got the reserve list. It almost killed Magic. Well, it killed my interest in Yu-Gi-Oh! too. They printed a set called Dark Beginnings, which I had built uh, play sets accounting for like restricted cards and whatever, like whatever number you could play of all of the cards. Like I had Legend of the Blue Eyes X3, which is like owning a playset of Alpha now. And the fact that I just yeeted it when I did just, and I see the prices now, it like breaks my heart. But I had like Legend of the Blue Eyes, Metal Raiders, all the early sets, however many you were allowed to play. And then they printed Dark Beginnings and like Exodia, like everybody who is even adjacently aware of Yu-Gi-Oh! knows about the unstoppable Exodia. You get like his head and his four limbs in your hand and you just win. You just reveal them and the game ends. I had like a set of Exodia. All of the pieces were ultra rare in Legend of the Blue Eyes and they reprinted them as the head was super rare and then all of the limbs were regular rare. So it basically like downshifted from five mythics to like a rare and four uncommons in magic parlance. And that was just like one of the many things that just obliterated my interest in collecting or continuing to play that game. And then that's also about the time that uh, I was just getting full fledged back into magic. I never quit magic, but I was playing more Yu-Gi-Oh than magic for that period of time. And this was a around Mirrodin. Uh, in Magic's history. So I I was playing a Yu-Gi-Oh tournament at the only game in town in New Jersey, and I saw somebody on turn one just like Seed of the Synod, uh, some other artifact like Welding Jar, Tooth of Chiscoria, Frogmite, Frogmite, Mirror Enforcer, Go. And I was like, oh, I want some of that. So uh, 
the brokenness of Mirrodin that everyone was quitting magic over got me back into magic around the same time where the disaster that was Chronicles that almost killed magic did in fact kill Yu-Gi-Oh for me. I played a lot of card games growing up, never any in quite the same way that I did magic. Like I played the the Pokemon card game, I played Yu-Gi-Oh. Um I got really big into the Naruto card game in college, which was very fun, but the rules were like unparsable uh and was like a huge deterrent to more people actually getting into that game. And this, like, only kind of counts. The big thing that I do today is actually play Slay the Spire, which is a video game that, like, very much has, like, Magic the Gathering and, like, roguelite elements kind of pushed together into one. And, like, it's a deck-building game where you acquire random cards um, after each encounter, and there's, like, relics and other stuff that go along with it. That gets hundreds of hours of my time. So, like, while I'm not actively channeling into any other card game... Like, that one still kind of counts. Phil, you segued me perfectly. I was going to mention one of my all-time favorite games is Final Fantasy VIII because you can play the card game in it, which is a similar theme where you battle other people in the game, you get cards, and then you can play the card game. I would play that card game for hours. Like, it was so, so good. Yeah, if we're merging the physical definition of card into digital spaces, I have hundreds maybe thousands of hours of hearthstone under my belt i have not played it in probably a year or more i i could probably safely delete it from my phone at this point but the hearthstone base base game that then transitioned into battlegrounds which was my first experience with auto battlers then my enjoyment of auto battlers transitioned into storybook brawl which is kind of my if i have 25 minutes and want to chill that i still just fire that up I was grinding to like Mythic and qualifying for the monthly PTQ for Storybook Brawl for the first uh, six months or so it existed. Now I just sort of, when I have 25 minutes, fire one in. I'm not really grinding it anymore. Also, that triggers a question that's in my own head, because coming from Magic and Yu-Gi-Oh! and whatever, and then playing Hearthstone, which is marketed as a digital card game, now I play Storybook Brawl, and in my head I call all the units cards, but they're not. <laughs> they're like it's it's not like uh team fight tactics where you see like a 3D rendering of units on the board. They are like 2D and they just sort of jump around. They look like cards, but nothing about that is marketed as a card game. But in my head they're all cards. The next question is from Pink Hat Boy. Legacy is much more fun or Legacy has much more fun deck names than other formats. What are your favorites and where did they come from? Mine is Dead Guy L from once again Pink Hat Boy. The Dead Guy Ale is just like the best legacy deck name. Um, so like we can just move on to the next question, right? <laughs> well, this question has a complicated history where, which once again seems to be the theme, ties back into CD- CEDH. CEDH is in that crazy deck name phase of the format's existence where Cedric Phillips led the charge with the Star City Circuit starting probably eight, ten years ago to normalize deck names where he would just put like... Uh, death and taxes as like mono white uh prison creatures or whatever on the star city deck database instead of as death and taxes or like cephalid breakfast he would just put on as like esper illusionist combo and and, like really pushed for that to start being a thing so which makes the game much more approachable like me stepping into cdh now having a conversation with invested players and they're like yeah i was playing mab farm against uh slick Nas, and uh, just like what are you even saying none of these are words they don't help me approach the format at all 
And it's actually like I came up in old magic world where like I played quick and toast as a standard deck. That was a thing inspired by cephalid breakfast and Cheerios and tricks. There was just a, a history of naming decks after breakfast food. And okay, that's cool if you're inside on the joke, but if you're coming from outside, it's not helpful. And experiencing it now as an adult, like you don't often get a, a reset on a thing that you're indoctrinated into and get to see it from the outside. And seeing CEDH now and how I cannot navigate a single like deck database in any meaningful way makes me not interested in these deck names anymore. But it is fun that this history exists. Um, I don't know that I have a favorite deck name. I'll have to think about it. Uh, I mostly just deleted all of this from my head in the last few years as I became fully on board with calling decks what they are. Yeah, in all seriousness, like I am very anti-cute deck names. Same. De descriptive deck names matter. Descriptive deck names are accessible to new players, and they are also better for things like your search engine optimization. Most of the time, when I am making YouTube titles... Like, if a deck has a cute name, like, maybe that gets in the YouTube title, but a lot of times it doesn't, because, like, the keywords matter so much more. The keywords actually tell people what, like, is going on with the deck. Yeah, like, sometimes a deck would get a cute name based on loosely on what the deck's doing, like, Angry Tradewind Survivalist was a survival of the fittest deck with Tradewind Rider and Anger in it. So that that's kind of explains what it's doing. Four Horsemen... I released a video on that a while ago, and there were a lot of arguments in the comments about what the four horsemen actually were. Some people were saying, like, no, it's the three Nart Amoebas and Emrakul, or, like, it's, uh, I, I don't know, or it's, like, it's the four moving combo pieces. At least there are, like, four of something in the deck. We could debate what it is, but who knows? At least it's based on something. But then there's, like, the Freshmaker. Do either of you know what the Freshmaker is? Just from me saying it out loud? Nope. It was a mono green Shatter deck in uh, Mirrodin Block Constructed. It, oh, it like, I know topped that out deck. on Molder Slug and played oxidize like Oxidize uh, and Naturalize. Yeah, and yeah, yeah Oxidize, Nat, Viridian Zealot, all of those things. Yeah, that deck was called the Freshmaker. Good luck knowing what the hell that is. It also had Plow Under. 15 years it. removed. Yeah. Like those names are not helpful and they're not fun. But some of them, like Death and Taxes at this point, that does not describe what the deck does. But at this point, it's like so locked in. I would consider Dead Gael in that same range. Even the Epic Storm. Like, knowing the difference between Ad Nauseam Tendrils and the Epic Storm is kind of winky from people who are inside. Like, the Epic Storm should probably call be called, like, uh, Metalcraft Storm or, like, Artifact Storm or, like, Onboard Resource Storm compared to, like, Ad Nauseam Tendrils, which literally describes what the deck does. I see Brian already sitting up in his chair. I'm not trying to roast. It's just, like, if we were really describing what the deck does, like, calling it Epic Storm doesn't really help a new player understand what the difference is. All right, I have a couple points I'd like to make here. Going back to ridiculous deck names, in the early days of Legacy, there's an egregious example that stands out to me, and it's Rabid Wombat, a green four-mana creature. It was a mono-white control deck that played Bandage to stop Goblin Lackey on top of Swords to Plowshares, and people thought it was the coolest thing that their deck was called Rabbit Wombat, and they were in on the joke. These sort of things were funny when Legacy was 100 people, maybe 200 people. It's less funny when your format has more people in it, and you're just gatekeeping people away. And I think that's what a lot of it is. It's gatekeeping because you want to feel cool. You're in on the joke. You don't want others to feel that way. And it's just like kind of not cool, at least in my opinion. Secrets don't make friends. We've all been told that. Uh, maybe not in those words, but secrets don't make friends. Uh, you can have your joke with your friend, but 
you're not going to bring new people into the format when they're just like, uh, I, I played Rabid Wombat versus Cephalid Breakfast the other day, and I got blown out by you know, then a nickname for some card uh, that isn't even the card's name. So the Epic Storm was named in 2006 for what it's worth, and uh, I only had a, a, a partial say in what it was named. So for those of you that don't know, the Epic Storm isn't named because I thought the word Epic was super cool. I was or I was a part of a team that was created. And when we changed our team name from, I'm not even going to say it, but there was a really bad team name and we changed it. I wasn't even a part of the team name change. I was in a room with uh, a handful of other individuals and they were like, we're not letting a 16 year old pick our team name, sit down. So these other people picked the team name, which ended up being the Epic Syndicate. And they renamed the decks to the epic angry trade when survival, the epic control, and they're like, yours will be the epic storm. So yeah, and that was a normal thing to do at the time, like mean deck oath, uh, mean deck vault, like team mean deck was working really hard on vintage back at the time. It was really normal to like, plant your flag on a specific type of archetype or wedge of an existing archetype by naming it after your team. But saying mean deck oath to people now uh, do you know that that version contains Hellkite Tyrant over one of the other things that you could oath for? Uh, obviously, that's not even remotely in the the realm of playable now. Like big creatures are better than they used to be. But if I say Steel City Vault, do you know what that is? Because that was just like a thing kicking around. It was like a hyper wheel centric deck that just shredded through like fast mana as quickly as possible to assemble Vault Key. Uh, it was just like. Maximum broken, kind of in the realm of Blue Belcher these days. You know, Steel City Vault, great, not useful, but it was totally normal back then. My point was not to say the Epic Storm should change its name, but like the Epic Storm has evolved to a point where it's going to take a moment to explain to someone like, oh, Ad Nauseum Tendrils is like ritual based and Epic Storm is more like onboard and artifact based compared to the two. Like that's the main difference or uh, like Burning Wish is your payoff versus Infernal Tutor. Uh, there there are things you can explain to someone in 30 seconds or less that, okay, got it. Uh, but the name does not help differentiate anything. So I would agree with you that said, I think it's easier for, and I, and I do realize and I agree with you that it's less specific, but for a format as old as Legacy, I would actually argue that Ad Nauseum Tendrils is a misnomer because like it's not really Ad Nauseum Tendrils. It's a Past in Flames Tendrils deck, but it's never been renamed because like there's even lists out there that don't play ad nauseum. Like there's members of the discord that like sometimes play it in their sideboard where the Epic storm is also a name that can change over time. Like if I had named my deck, the diminishing return storm in 2006, like it, it wouldn't hold, the, it wouldn't stand the test of time. So it, with having some flexibility in there, it is nice. I think death and taxes has that part of that longevity, not only because it's been a playable deck for a long time, but it wasn't called um, Sarah Avenger mid-range control or whatever. You know what I mean? Uh, there's a little bit of that to it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, some some historical value to it, but you do need to get behind the curtain to start understanding it. This ended up being a, a long conversation about this. Uh, I'm going to close it by just telling the real story of Dead Guy Ale. If those of you who don't know it, this is a legacy podcast. Um, Chris Pakula and his friends in the early days would show up to magic tournaments together and they weren't a team called dead guy. They just enjoyed the metal band dead guy. And they so frequently wore dead guy t-shirts that Brian David Marshall just started calling the group of them, those dead guys. And then they 
adopted that as okay yeah now we're now we're the dead guys we're team dead guy and then team dead guy existed for a while and chris pakula finished second in the first ever legacy grand prix with what was known as dead guy ale and they called it dead guy ale because it was a brew and you brew ale so that's the story of dead guy Al. and that deck happened to be a black white mid-rangey uh, him to truck sink whole kind of deck and that's just what we call those decks now i'm a little surprised by that uh i from i'm not i was never aware of that origin story but i was aware that dead guy L is an adult beverage uh and i always assumed that the deck was named after the beer that was a coincidence uh it was sort of a meta thing that also like the beer did exist at the time and they did know that but they didn't name the deck after a beer. It was just like, we're the dead guys. We brewed this. You brew a beer. This is dead guy ale. And it's also funny because it's a beer. I can see that. So, yep. Brian, you're also super old. I'm sure you remember this. You'd face people growing up and they'd have their meddling mages signed by Chris Pakula or their shadow mage infiltrator signed by John Finkel. And these people were like rock stars to me as a kid. And interacting with them at Grand Prix or facing them at Grand Prix and stuff, like it feels surreal. But also at this point in my life, I'm just like, yeah, there's people too. Uh, so it's kind of wild to think back on how my perspective has changed there. Yeah, uh, I remember getting uh, actually like shaky the first time I was near a pro that I had read about in like Inquest and like Scry Magazine as a kid. And like as Magic moved online, like it, on the Mothership articles, like uh, I believe it was Shuhei Nakamura and I wasn't even playing against him. I was like a table down from him at a Grand Prix trial the Friday before a Grand Prix. And I was like, oh my god this is so cool like my hands were actually like shaking while i was shuffling my deck and then you realize that they're all just nerds with a, a passion in in common with yours and they're great at what they do but like these days i like pakula and kai follow me on twitter <laughs> and we like interact somewhat regularly uh they've both done intros for this podcast i just like fire off a dm like hey kai can you record an intro for this podcast and he's like i've never listened to it but sure and it they're all just like cool people hanging out in a nerd space with other nerds yeah this isn't an explicit question but i think it's worth following up on everybody loses life points the same way like it might be really intimidating like the first time you get paired against a pro like whatever that means these days but like everyone loses and wins you know magic the same way you know no matter how good that pro is you know in a large enough time scale over and over enough games, like they're going to have a 60% win rate, right? Like you're going to win that 40% of the time. It's, it's not that bad. Like deep breath, don't freak out. And remember, especially if you play on magic online, you've already played against tons of pros, maybe GP winners. And you just like, didn't know it. Right. Their lightning bolts don't deal for the cards are the same. Okay. We spent a lot of time on that, but I think it was a good talk. Let's jump into the next one. This is from Buffalo chicken dip legacy. They are always taking ideas to make their tournament experience better and unique, whether it's their signature buffalo chicken dip, allowing playtest cards, or having an open at a giant brewery with on-site hotel and providing lunch. What ideas do you have to make the tournament experience more enjoyable or would like to see that maybe no one else is doing? Did they just get a free ad? Uh, it's not free. They're a member of the Patreon. Rob does owe us all Pelotons. I believe he promised that on Twitter that he would be sponsoring this podcast and MTG Fitness in general by sending Pelotons to the three of us. Oh, man. Sure that's him. so generous. Wow. I know. I can't believe he did that. And now it's uh, on a podcast, so it's got to happen or else it, he is uh, he's compromised as, as a man. 
and a business owner. <laughs> oh man, just uh, just a little toxic masculinity sprinkle in there. That was that was oh, good. Yeah. That was good. Yeah, just let him have it. I just really want that Peloton. But anyway, uh, back to the actual thing that we're supposed to be talking about. Um, I have attended, I think, three Buffalo Chicken Dip events. Uh, the only one that I've missed since I became aware of them was because I was on vacation last week and one just ran. I'm looking forward to the big one that he mentioned that's going to be at a brewery with a hotel and providing a taco bar for lunch. That's freaking sweet. Also, registration still available for that event. I am giving him a free ad for that because I wanted to succeed. But historically, a good event to me. I've been to like big, fancy, crazy events that people try to like blow out all the services, like prize pools that are going to melt your brain or change your life if you win. I've sat in like big padded chairs. I've sat in like lazy boys to play magic in like the VIP section as like a perk that I paid extra for. I, I've experienced all of these things. And really at the end of the day, I want a well-run event. I want a competent judge staff. I want well lit. I want it to be clean. I want a chair to sit in with some elbow room. And I want to be able to uh, do a number two in the bathroom comfortably if necessary. Like really, if those boxes are checked... I think that event is going to be really good and that might sound like the bare minimum, but it's not like that is a real bar that I, especially now that every freaking store gets an RCQ that does not require a judge of any kind and uh, just any Yahoo with a brick and mortar location can run these things. I've seen some horror stories. I want those basic boxes checked, unassailably checked before you offer me a taco bar. But once those boxes are checked, uh, Tales of Adventure, when they did their Eternal Extravaganza series uh, many years ago, my favorite one that they ever did was at their home store. Uh, this is before uh, they got a little, I think uh, Mike would agree, too big for their britches and started renting out the Baltimore Convention Center and trying to fire a series like Star City and like kind of outgrew their their reach there. They held it at their home store, which had a lot of seating space. It was catered by just this Italian deli from the town where they came in and they, they had sub sandwiches and chips and everything at reasonable prices. It doesn't even need to be included. It just I could eat food without leaving the venue, a variety of like nutritional or junk options as I please, just have room to sit down and eat it. And that just made me very happy uh, compared to any big blow the doors off kind of experience speaking of blowing the doors off brian that taco bar is not going to go well with your toilet situation that you were talking about there well i mean if i said that i want a clean place to do that if necessary and it is likely to become necessary but having attended three of these already buffalo chicken dip is no better than a taco bar at keeping the the bowels solid so it's been experienced already <laughs> Rather than trying to do more things to make yourself stand out, like being better at the things that matter is what I recommend. Almost without fail, when I think of like the worst magic tournaments I've ever been to, it's because like there wasn't enough space, there wasn't a place that I could realistically get food, there wasn't a place where I could refill my water bottle. Like all of the things that stand out in making events bad for the most part are just infrastructure things. Like, get get a good judge staff, get a good venue, like, make sure the people have the things that they, they are going to need to maintain homeostasis over the weekend, and you will have happy players. I have a question for the two of you. Are you more likely to enter an event that is for a specific card or for money? Those are the same to me. In many ways, 
I like playing for cards more than I like playing for cash uh, because the vendor or the TO, if they are a vendor, did not spend the cash value on those. They got them at buy list. So they can kind of artificially pump up the prize pool by like, my brain is saying Tarmogoyf, even though I know that's not an expensive card anymore. But if like, you're going to offer $200, but Tarmogoyf is $50 card, but you got it at buy list. So now your first prize can be the $200 Tarmogoyfs and you still have $100 to spend on prizes for the rest of the top eight. Like, I think that's going to come out better in, in the long run. Also, just with reserve list cards these days and like the price that those are and the price that we all know they will be in another two years, you can... I won a Mox Diamond uh, three weeks ago. I, I had the shocking realization that it was worth double what my first Mox Emerald was worth. The first piece of power I ever owned was a Mox Emerald I won. And Mox Diamond is worth double now what the Emerald was at the time. And I felt like it was life-changing to own that piece of cardboard uh, 12 years ago or whatever it was. And this Mox Diamond, it's like $600 payday now. Or put it in a binder if you can afford to. Or put it in a deck. Use it. And three years from now, it'll be $800. Like, I'm very excited about winning reserve list cards compared to, like, their equivalent cash right now. All right. So our next question is, what flavor of Just Guy Control you know, e.g. Mentor, Kitten, Days Undoing, seems the most consistent. I'm gonna, I'm not gonna lie, I don't like Jeskai, and as the the resident blue player here, the fair blue player, uh, I just feel like every version of Jeskai is just a little bit shitty in one direction or another. Like, you get the, the hashtag three-drop tribal of uh, just all these three-mana planeswalkers, and, like, your alternate wincon is Mentor, which is also a three-drop, and, like, I just don't like any of it. But I would probably play something with a combo win in it, either Days Undoing or the the Kitten package. Yeah, I'm with that. Uh, we're approaching the end of our episode here, but we've got a couple questions. So let's see if we can fire through and get to both of these. All right, um, this is from Card Shagger, who says, from someone approaching the format fresh, what would be on your syllabus for an introductory survey course in Legacy? Just learn how to play Delver. Honestly, like, pick up Delver, start queuing into Moto Leagues. If you get proficient with Delver, in order to, like, actually pick apart your opponents with cards like Days and Lightning Bolt and how to pace out a game and stuff, it will help you understand what is important about every other deck, and it'll show you True North, so you know what the format's actually about, and then you're... Like, if you start with Death and Taxes, you're going to have a, a warped perspective about what Legacy's actually about, or, you know, whatever, like Red Prison or... Lone Pox, but Delver, you will know exactly what the tip of the iceberg is, and all of the everything that trickles out into the format from that point will make more sense. I think in general, people don't play enough before making a decision on what deck they want to play, or even if they have selected a deck. I'm sure the two of you also experienced this, where they'll sign up for tutoring, but they don't have enough of the fundamentals down. Like they'll be like, "Do I play this Plains?" Even though it's the only land in their hand. Like, I feel like in order for the tutoring sessions to be effective, you want to have a solid baseline. And I know that we talked a little bit about this last week, but just play more. And Magic Online is a great way of doing that. So my recommendation is just play a lot of Magic Online or even Cockatrice or X-Major or whatever you got to do. Just play more. Right. Print out proxies with your friends. Uh, grab a card hoarder loan account and play a different deck every day. Uh, you, you want to understand what the format's about, and then try things. And if you are looking for, like, a list of decks, 
Just go to like MTG Goldfish, MTG Top 8, get a feel for what the 10 most commonly played decks in Legacy are, and play some games with and against those. Like at any given time, there's usually about two-ish good control decks. You know, there's usually a Delver deck or two. There's a couple of other weird things like Death and Taxes that are always floating around the format, and then a few of the combo decks. Getting very basic proficiency with a handful of decks will take you very, very far. Agreed. And our final question is from Stinkbug. I'm in my early 20s and trying to get into Legacy, but I face a lot of gatekeeping from longtime players of the format. Card availability is not an issue because my LGS does full proxy, but playing with cards older than me has made a lot of people assume I don't know what I'm doing. In fact, I often have to deal with my opponents mansplaining basic interactions or lecturing me on how I am misplaying mid-game because I look too young to know what I'm doing. I understand Legacy is a rich format that takes years to master, and I respect the knowledge longtime players have over me. However, being constantly talked down to has sapped a lot of the fun out of it. What can I do to change the dynamic and be more healthy and inclusive for new Legacy players like me? I gotta say, I read this question as an email notification a couple days ago when it came in. My brain just went into a red haze. I was like, fuck every member of that community who's being a dick to a new legacy player. Like, this is not just a legacy thing. Uh, I think it's a community thing in general. Like, the horror stories are out there of, like, if you are a non-male entering the space, if you are a young person entering the space, if you are a non-white person entering the space... If the community others you in some way and feels like you don't aren't supposed to be there or you haven't paid your dues or this person can't possibly know what they're doing, that that's like a community issue more than a legacy issue. And I, as, as we approach an hour into this podcast, this is a heavy thing. Like we could do a podcast on this and it's literally an industry of there are people who get hired to help clean up toxic communities and like methods and of like doing that. And this is just like a really heavy question that me just being a person who's not in the community to speak up and say something. I'm just like those people need to, you know, shut up is basically my answer. And what I would do if I were in that community personally as an experienced legacy player is I would tell those people to shut up. Like the the people, those of us who see a new person coming in and are excited by that, and we see like a Joe Goblin or whatever just explaining how the person misplayed and like, oh yeah, you won, but you could have won faster if you did this. Shut up, look over and be like, did they ask for this advice? Like then shut up. Like it takes the people who are already in to set the tone for bringing in new members. I am very much a believer in if you say nothing, everything continues. Th- to go the way it is um so I, w- I would encourage you to say something even if that something is going to make someone else uncomfortable right because you're already uncomfortable yeah so if if you do not change your habits like this is going to be a cycle that continues so for example i'll use my own local game store as an example i i came in there brought a modern death and taxes that i had prepared specifically to like play in this event with absolutely crushed the person that i played against like two owed them and they went on like this tirade about how I was, I was bullshit. I shouldn't be playing this. And I just looked him in the eyes and I said, oh, I thought I could bring whatever deck I wanted to my friendly local game store. Sorry, is this not a friendly local game store? And the guy like looked at me, like realized he was being a complete asshole. And he's like, hey, man, I'm sorry. Like, I just kind of tilted off there. My bad. Who are you? <laughs> yeah, uh, 
a lot of people don't they're basically just being selfish at the end of the day like they forget that their opponent is a human being like when someone is tilting or mansplaining or whatever it is i one of my my dear dear friends uh is a a known rager and calling him out was basically my job in in various gaming spaces uh board games casual games tournament games for a number of years and when I could get him to like cool down and talk to me, you'd be like, it's just frustrating. Like, I know they only play one of those and they drew it. And it's like, okay, you think you're the only person who doesn't like losing? How many of your opponents today have flipped out the way you just did when you beat them? Are you the only person who deserves to win a game in this game store? Are, are, do you expect to be first place in every tournament? And, and like, just like once you start to actually engage in a conversation with someone, they realize that they're being a, a dick. Most people don't want to be dicks. And a lot of the time, an apology doesn't feel good. It's like, I wish you just weren't a dick instead. But an apology, I guess, is a start. To piggyback on what Phil was saying is, stand up for yourself. If you're not comfortable doing it to the person directly, there will, you could talk to the store owner or the TO or whatever you've got to do. But if you sit there, like Phil mentioned, not doing anything, it's going to bottle up within you. And a lot of the time, just confronting the people that are, you know, having this toxic behavior can go a long way because I think most people are willing to be reasonable. And some of these people just might not know that they're assholes. Like if you're just like, hey, this, you know, whatever you're doing is inappropriate or you don't really need to talk to me that way, they'll get the the gist pretty quickly. Yeah. And if you're not comfortable being the one to be aggressive, like go talk to the store owner, go talk to the person at the counter. Because, like, when you frame it as, like, hey, this person is doing X, I'm not comfortable with X, I'm leaving if X doesn't change, you bet that store clerk is going to bust their ass over there and be like, dude, Jim, we've talked about this shit, cut it out. Yeah, because that's the store's bag. Like, they are, you are a, a wallet, you're a credit card that comes in and out. I mean, you're also a human, but in the practical keep the game store lights on sense, it is in the best interest of game stores to have communities that welcome new people in there. All right. Do we have any final thoughts here? Legacy's great. Play it. Yeah, Legacy's great. Actually, I'm going to fix that and say Magic is great. And uh, the more you get out of discourse and the more you go play Magic, the better time you're going to have. The, the, the salve for Magic discourse is Magic. <laughs> like, stop talking, go play. Hopefully your game store isn't toxic. And if it is, you know, Step one is say something. Yep. Agreed. Agreed.